This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is your last chance to enter the Ohio Lottery's Fun Turns 50 promotion. Score $3,500 in two tickets to the epic party at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, where you could win part of another $400,000 in cash prizes. Enter the new 50th anniversary scratch-off or $50 worth of eligible non-winning $5 or $10 scratch-offs and my lotto rewards through the Ohio Lottery app. Hurry up. The last entry deadline is May 13th. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. July 24th, 2005 was one of the greatest days in Lance Armstrong's life. He had just won an unimaginable seventh straight Tour de France, and now he was going out on top. Since his first victory in 1999, Lance had fought off fierce rivals. He had avoided dangerous crashes, passed countless drug tests, but at the end of every July, the result was the same. Lance Armstrong standing atop the podium, clad in the iconic yellow jersey. But this year, something was different. To celebrate Lance's incredible achievement, he was afforded an honor rarely given to Tour de France winners. He was allowed to make a speech. After praising the second and third place riders and thanking various friends and sponsors, Lance ended with these iconic words. I'll say to the people who don't believe, the cynics and the skeptics, I'm sorry for you. I'm sorry you don't believe in miracles. And with that, Lance rode off into the proverbial sunset. But for those who didn't believe in his miraculous comeback story, that wasn't enough. By the time they were done digging, Lance's words atop that podium wouldn't be hailed as a hopeful message for the sport's future. They'd be seen as the ironic words of a man who had conned millions of people. Welcome to Sports Criminals, a ParCast original. Every week, we dive into the dark side of sports history and look at athletes who not only broke the law, but broke the rules and covenants of their sport. We'll also uncover how their actions impacted the history of the sport they played. I'm Tim Johnson. And I'm Carter Roy. You can find episodes of Sports Criminals and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Sports Criminals for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. 
This is our second of two episodes on Lance Armstrong. Hailed as the most miraculous story in sporting history, Lance recovered from cancer and went on to win the Tour de France an unprecedented seven times in a row. But despite being one of the most drug-tested athletes ever, Lance successfully executed what was called the most successful doping program that sport has ever seen. Last week, we explored Lance's rise through the cycling ranks and how, even after he beat his cancer, he used performance-enhancing drugs to crush his competition. This week, we'll see how Lance's ruthless approach to silencing his critics led to dozens of friends, teammates, and employees turning on one of the world's most celebrated athletes. After the 2001 Tour de France, Lance Armstrong seemed unstoppable. In winning a third consecutive title, the 29-year-old had done more than beat his rivals on the road. He had batted aside the critics questioning his connection to notorious doping doctor Michele Ferrari, or so he thought. Shortly after the tour ended, Irish journalist David Walsh wrote an article in the Sunday Times questioning the legitimacy of Lance's performance. Most notably, the article contained a statement from American cycling legend Greg LeMond that cast doubt on Lance's credibility as a clean athlete. Such an insult, no matter how true, couldn't go unpunished. Using his influence with many of their shared sponsors, Lance successfully intimidated LeMond into retracting his statement. Once again, it seemed like David Walsh had run into a dead end in his quest to prove Lance was a cheat. With a team of high-powered lawyers behind him, surely nobody in their right mind would risk speaking out against him. But there were still people out there who valued doing the right thing over any potential legal consequences. And one of them had heard Lance say he had used PEDs. Back when Lance was fighting cancer in late 1996, he had casually admitted to a group of six people that he had used multiple performance-enhancing drugs. Among that group was Lance's teammate Frankie Andreu and Frankie's wife Betsy. The idea of PEDs like the blood booster EPO made Betsy Andreu intensely uncomfortable. However, she was powerless to speak out. If she told the truth about what Lance said, it would have grave repercussions on Frankie's cycling career. But by the end of the 2001 tour, Frankie had retired. When Betsy saw Greg Lamont's quote in the Sunday Times article, she couldn't stay silent any longer. She had to talk to David Walsh. Walsh was convinced Betsy was telling the truth, but he couldn't take the information public. At this point, it would be Betsy's word against Lance's, and only one of them had a fleet of high-powered lawyers at their disposal. But Betsy's story confirmed Walsh's suspicion that Lance was a doper. Now he just had to find proof. In August 2001, Walsh teamed up with a French colleague, Pierre Ballister. Like Walsh, Ballister cared deeply about keeping the sport honest. Convinced they could make a compelling case against him, Walsh and Ballister decided to combine forces and write a book about their investigation into Lance's use of PEDs. But swaying the public to their side would be an uphill battle. 
the cycling world and the lucrative American market had both bought into Lance mania. For instance, the Outdoor Life Network dedicated so many resources to covering his exploits that it became known as the Only Lance Network. However, all those fans and endorsement deals from companies like Nike and Oakley could evaporate in an instant if Lance didn't keep winning. To that end, Lance needed to reload ahead of the 2002 Tour de France and his quest for a fourth straight victory. Lance's U.S. Postal Service team had lost some of the key members from the 2001 squad. He needed a new lieutenant to shepherd him through the mountains. Lance decided that person would be Floyd Landis. 26-year-old Floyd Landis was a singular figure in pro cycling. Raised in a strict Mennonite family, Floyd grew up in a rural Pennsylvania township literally named Farmersville. Even though he wasn't even allowed to wear shorts, Floyd gravitated towards cycling and became a skilled mountain bike racer. In 1999, he switched to road racing. He signed for Lance's U.S. postal team three years later, just ahead of the 2002 Tour de France. Although Floyd lacked discipline, Lance realized he was a diamond in the rough. With enough training, he could become a key cog in the USPS machine. Ahead of the tour, Lance brought Floyd along for so-called altitude training in St. Moritz, Switzerland. But they had a third wheel on this little getaway. Dr. Michele Ferrari. Within pro cycling circles, Dr. Ferrari was the dawn of doping. He didn't just know how to maximize his clients' PED use, he knew how to keep them from getting caught. Lance had been working with Ferrari since 1995. Even after Ferrari went on trial for providing athletes with PEDs, Lance dutifully stuck by the good doctor's side. He had to avoid a paper trail, but the risk was worth the reward. Nobody ran a doping program like Michele Ferrari. And Floyd Landis wasn't Lance's only USPS teammate on the Ferrari plan. They all were. If anyone refused, they were out. With Floyd and seven other teammates looking after him, Lance cruised to his fourth straight Tour de France victory. History was in his sights. 2003 was a big year for Lance Armstrong. With a fourth consecutive tour in the bag, it was time to go for number five. Although four others had reached that mark, only one of them did it consecutively. Lance was determined to be the second. But Lance wasn't the only one trying to make history that year. While he was preparing for the biggest race of his life, Sunday Times journalist David Walsh got in touch with a new source in his investigation. In May 2003, about two months before the tour began, Walsh spoke to former USPS massage therapist Emma O'Reilly. Although she hadn't seen Lance directly use PEDs, O'Reilly had seen proof of it. Encouraged by the fact that she would be one of several voices in Walsh's book, she agreed to tell him everything she knew. Sitting down with Walsh during the 2003 tour, O'Reilly discussed how she had disposed a bag of empty used syringes on Lance's behalf after the 1998 Tour of Holland. And the day before the 99 Tour de France, O'Reilly had noticed needle marks in his arm as he headed for his pre-race medical. 
thinking fast. O'Reilly ran to the pharmacy and bought concealer to cover up the bruises. If it wasn't for her actions, Lance's Tour de France legacy could have been over before it had even begun. O'Reilly was also there the night Lance tested positive for cortisone. She hadn't seen him take it, but she knew for a fact that he didn't have saddle sores. As the team's massage therapist, it's something he would have mentioned to her. After the team solved the problem by creating a backdated prescription, Lance told O'Reilly, Now, Emma, you know enough to bring me down. After leaving the USPS team following the 99 tour, O'Reilly had no intention of using this information against Lance. But like Betsy Andreu, she had no intention of lying about it either. She had seen too many friends die from abusing PEDs, seen the sport she loved become a doped-up shadow of itself. The 2003 tour was a perfect encapsulation of that corruption. In addition to Lance, most of that year's top contenders would eventually face punishment for using PEDs. There was Jan Ulrich, who would be banned for doping before the 2006 tour, Alexander Vinokurov, who tested positive for blood doping during the 07 tour, and former USPS rider Tyler Hamilton, whose heroic ride throughout the 03 edition with a broken collarbone looked less impressive after testing positive following the 04 Olympics. That's just to name a few. Of the top 10 riders at the 03 tour, only two were never implicated in a PED scandal. But for the moment, PED use wasn't seriously being dealt with. David Walsh was determined to change that. While Lance fended off the doped-up peloton and joined the exclusive five-time winners club, Walsh was tracking down new leads. In the fall of 2003, Walsh went to New Zealand to speak with one of Lance's former teammates, Stephen Swart. He had been Lance's teammate on the Motorola team back in 1994 and 95, just when Lance was seriously getting into using PEDs. Far removed from professional cycling and working as a property developer, Swart figured that Lance's wrath would have little effect on him if he spoke out. Swart's description of his time on Motorola was in stark contrast to what Lance had said about the team when he talked to Walsh before the 2001 tour. According to Lance, Motorola was white as snow, but Swart painted a very different picture. Swart told Walsh that the Motorola riders had discussed doping as a team during a training ride in March 1995. By then, Lance had long made up his mind. After getting pasted in a race by three riders using EPO, he was determined to seek out the services of the notorious Dr. Ferrari. And by the end of the camp, Swart and the others agreed to follow his lead. Although they couldn't all afford to pay a doctor like Ferrari, the blood booster EPO was widely available as an over-the-counter drug. Swart drove to Switzerland and bought some at a pharmacy. However, any boost it gave to his body was negated by the stress breaking the rules caused him. Once his initial stash ran out, Swart decided to stop doping. And once he was done doping, Lance no longer wanted him on the team. Swart's contract wasn't renewed after the 95 season. Armed with interviews from Stephen Swart, Betsy Andreu, and Emma O'Reilly, 
Walsh had enough material to paint a very bad portrait of Lance. Working with his writing partner, Pierre Ballister, the book L.A. Confidentielle was set to release in June 2004, less than a month before Lance attempted a record-breaking sixth Tour de France victory. But Lance wasn't content to sit idly by and watch his name get dragged through the mud. Like his rivals on the road, those who had spoken out against him would be mercilessly crushed. Coming up, Lance dispenses his idea of justice. Now, back to the story. A few weeks before the 2004 Tour de France, Sunday Times journalist David Walsh and his writing partner, Pierre Ballister, released a book called L.A. Confidentielle through the French publisher La Martiniere. It contained compelling evidence that Lance Armstrong had used performance-enhancing drugs throughout his career. But it didn't have concrete proof. And that was enough for Lance to go on the offensive. A few days before the book was published, a few excerpts ran in the Sunday Times. Lance's lawyers immediately filed a libel lawsuit. Ultimately, that single article cost the newspaper 600,000 British pounds, approximately 1 million U.S. dollars. And that was only the beginning. Although the looser French libel laws prevented him from suing the book's publisher, Lance could still smear the people who had spoken out about him in its pages, particularly Emma O'Reilly. Although the former USPS team massage therapist was one of many voices in the book, her revelation about Lance's 1999 positive test for cortisone was one of its most notable passages. After all, Lance's reputation was staked on the fact that he had never failed a doping test. When asked about O'Reilly's comments during a press event in June 2004, Lance made serious insinuations about her character. Although he didn't say anything outright, Lance did say there were issues within the team management, within the riders, and she was let go. Without saying anything outright, Lance had opened the door for people to make all sorts of assumptions about O'Reilly, particularly that she was sexually involved with some of the riders, Then, when she was let go, she got angry. For the most part, the public sided with Lance. To the millions of people sporting his newly released Livestrong armbands, O'Reilly's statements in Walsh's book weren't explosive revelations about the world's most famous cyclist. They were the vindictive actions of a spurned woman. Even worse, Lance's lawyers came after O'Reilly as well. Unable to fight back against his legal machine, she was forced to remain silent while her character was dragged through the mud. Lance delivered the final blow against his critics during a press conference the day before the 2004 tour. It was a monumental occasion. Not only was he going for a record-breaking sixth victory, but L.A. Confidentielle had caused waves throughout the cycling community. Although people like Emma O'Reilly had been largely silenced, Lance couldn't make the doping allegations themselves go away. The press conference was standing room only. Even under normal circumstances, it would be well attended. But with David Walsh sitting in the second row, there were sure to be fireworks. While the evidence presented in Walsh and Pierre Ballister's book was certainly damning, even the authors agreed that it was circumstantial. There was no smoking gun, or in this case, 
EPO filled syringe. With public perception still largely in Lance's favor, the assembled press was hesitant to turn on Lance. As the face of cycling, he was still their cash cow. To that end, the press conference's first question was a complete softball. Lance, have the controversial allegations upset your preparations in any way? It was the perfect setup. And Lance smashed it home. He replied, I'll say one thing about the book. In my view, I think extraordinary accusations must be followed up with extraordinary proof. And Mr. Walsh and Mr. Ballister worked for years and they have not come up with extraordinary proof. It was the ultimate soundbite. Not only did it play to the idea that someone is innocent until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, but it allowed the assembled journalists to keep the wool pulled over their eyes for a little longer. Until someone produced definitive proof that Lance had doped, he could keep up the charade of being the cleanest of clean riders. With the matter settled, Lance and his U.S. postal teammates took to the roads, determined to bring home a sixth straight Tour de France victory. The near-invincible USPS riders made it look too easy. Burly giants like George Hincapie kept Lance shielded from the wind on the endless flats. Agile climbers like Jose Azevedo shepherded him through the mountains. And his trusty lieutenant, Floyd Landis, was beside him the entire way. As the race entered the final stages, Lance had a commanding lead and a clear path to the winner's podium. Nobody could stand in his way except for a little-known Italian rider named Filippo Simeone. At the time, even the biggest cycling fan couldn't have picked Simeone out of a crowd. He was completely anonymous, but not to Lance Armstrong. Two years earlier, Simeone had testified against Lance's doping consigliere, Dr. Michele Ferrari. As one of Ferrari's other clients, Simeone claimed the doctor had shown him how to use drugs like EPO more effectively. In response, Lance defended Ferrari and branded Simeone as a compulsive liar. Refusing to let Lance besmirch his reputation, Simeone sued him for defamation. But Lance wasn't content to let their feud play out in the courtroom. He was determined to make Simeone pay on the road. And on stage 18 of the 04 tour, he got his chance. With Lance's lead secure, stage 18 was set to be a sedate ride through the French countryside. A six-man breakaway group had separated from the peloton, and it seemed like they had a good chance of staying away. Chances like this didn't come around often, least of all for journeymen like Filippo Simeone. Before the breakaway got too far ahead, he accelerated out of the peloton to bridge the gap. But as Simeone shot out of the pack of cyclists, he had an unexpected partner tagging along, Lance Armstrong. For Lance to make a move on such an insignificant breakaway was practically unheard of. None of the other riders were a threat to his lead in the overall classification. This attack was purely personal. With Lance riding in the breakaway, there was no chance of the peloton letting them stay away. Even though his lead was unassailable, his rivals couldn't sit and watch him take more time from them. So Lance gave the other riders in the breakaway an ultimatum. He would only return to the peloton if Simeone came with him. 
Realizing there was no point in continuing, Simeone agreed to drop back with Lance. The fateful move had doomed more than his attempt to win the stage. It had ruined his career. Although Simeone would remain a pro for a few more years, the run-in with Lance had tarnished his name. As they waited for the peloton to catch up with them, Lance placed a hand on Simeone's shoulder. He had done the same to Christophe Basson five years earlier. The symbolism was abundantly clear for all to see. As the 2005 tour approached, Lance was 33 years old. It was a point when many professional cyclists started to slow down, but Lance still had plenty of juice in his legs, uh, literally and figuratively. However, the 05 tour would be his last. Once it was over, Lance would be calling it quits. Going into the race, Lance was somewhat out of his comfort zone. His USPS team was now sponsored by Discovery Channel, and his right-hand man, Floyd Landis, had departed to lead his own team. But Lance was still Lance. Just like the past six years, he crushed the competition. Bidding the cycling world goodbye in a speech atop his final winner's podium, Lance delivered a hopeful message. I'll say to the people who don't believe, the cynics and the skeptics, I'm sorry for you. I'm sorry you don't believe in miracles. It was Lance's final parting shot at those who had doubted him and the sport of cycling. At pesky journalists like David Walsh, who had dared to question his legitimacy, despite the fact that he had never failed a doping test. But now, the haters had been overcome. Despite the fact that he was dirtier than a used dish rag, Lance had ended his career with his squeaky clean image intact. However, Lance's retirement would hardly be spent sipping Mai Tais by the beach. In fact, his problems were just beginning. Coming up, an intrepid investigator digs up the most damning evidence against Lance yet. Now the conclusion of our story. In the aftermath of the 2005 Tour de France, life was looking good for Lance Armstrong. The 33-year-old had just wrapped a bow on one of the most incredible careers not just in pro cycling but in the history of sports. 22 Tour de France stage wins, seven consecutive overall titles, and of course, one victory against cancer. Through it all, Lance had passed hundreds of drug tests. Exactly how many he underwent has been disputed. According to Lance, it was somewhere between 500 and 600. According to the U.S. Anti-Doping Administration, that figure was closer to 250. Regardless of what the actual number was, the fact remained that Lance had never failed a test, with the caveat being that until 2001, there hadn't been a test to detect EPO. And of course, when Lance did test positive for cortisone during the 99 tour, a backdated prescription solved the problem. But as it turned out, that failed cortisone test wasn't the only evidence that Lance used performance-enhancing drugs in 1999. On August 23, 2005, French newspaper L'Equipe ran an article with the headline, Le Mensonge Armstrong, the Armstrong lie. 
It centered on an investigation in which urine samples from the 99 tour were retested using the previously unavailable EPO test. Sure enough, Lance's sample came back positive. Predictably, Lance didn't take the result lying down. As he always did in the face of doping allegations, he went on the offensive. He claimed the samples had been purposefully spiked, that the investigation was a witch hunt carried on by jealous Frenchmen who didn't like that an American was the face of the Tour de France. Of course, this was pure bluster. Lance had been caught red-handed, and he knew it. And yet, there was nothing cycling's governing body could do to punish him. Although the eight-year statute of limitations on a positive test meant that Lance could still face sanctions for the 99 Tour, the manner in which the test on his samples was conducted made the result ineligible. Because the samples had been tested strictly for research purposes and not for sporting reasons, the positive EPO test couldn't be enforced. Nevertheless, the article provided some vindication for journalists like David Walsh. Finally, he was no longer a lone voice crying out into the wilderness. Suddenly, people like Outside Magazine's Joe Lindsay and Dan Coyle were interested in Walsh's side of the Lance Armstrong story. However, the article did little to sway Lance's most devout supporters. In a thread on discussion forum Ars Technica, one user vocalized what many of Lance's fans were thinking when they wrote, They've had seven years to find something. They just need to accept defeat already. It was an all-too-familiar cycle. A credible accusation comes out against Lance. The authorities don't investigate it further. Lance goes on the offensive. Life goes on as usual. Lance's ability to preserve his public image, even in the face of such obvious proof, was also probably helped by the fact that he was retired. His accomplishments were firmly in the rearview mirror, and the American public had a new cycling hero to root for, Lance's former protege, Floyd Landis. Following a strong performance in the 04 Tour, Floyd left Lance's USPS team to become the leader of his own squad, sponsored by Swiss hearing aid company Phonak. With Lance no longer in the picture, Floyd entered into the 06 Tour as one of the favorites, and like his mentor, Floyd was ready to dominate the competition. However, that was easier said than done. Although he had a tenuous 10-second lead heading into the race's final week, Floyd crumpled in the mountainous 16th stage. He was over eight minutes behind the new leader. Well, most riders would have thrown in the towel after such a massive loss. But at the beginning of stage 17, Floyd attacked on the first of the day's five climbs. It was as if his struggles the day before had been nothing but a bad dream. By the time he summited the stage's second climb, Floyd had a gap of four minutes and 30 seconds over the peloton. By the third, it was seven minutes, 21 seconds. Once the dust settled, Floyd had won the stage by five minutes and 42 seconds. He had narrowed the deficit to first place to only 30 seconds. Two days later, Floyd reclaimed the leader's yellow jersey. Once again, the stars and stripes flew over Paris as another American won the Tour de France. While he hadn't dominated the competition in the way Lance had, Floyd accomplished something his mentor never did. He got caught using performance-enhancing drugs. 
If Floyd's incredible ride on stage 17 had seemed too good to be true, that's because it was. Only four days after the 06 tour ended, it was announced that his testosterone levels on stage 17 had been three times the acceptable limit. Despite the clear evidence against him, Floyd fought the result with everything he had. But there was no disputing the truth. On September 20th, 2007, the Court of Arbitration for Sport upheld the test's validity. Floyd was suspended for two years and stripped of his Tour de France title. Throughout his suspension, Floyd continued to maintain his innocence. He vowed that once the appeal was up, he would return to the highest levels of cycling. And he wasn't the only one plotting a comeback. In September 2008, Velo News magazine reported that one Lance Edward Armstrong was coming out of retirement. It was confirmed a few weeks later by the man himself. Racing for the Kazakh Astana team, Lance was returning in order to bring more attention to his cancer foundation. As such, he would be foregoing his salary. There was no mention of the boon his comeback would provide to sponsors like Trek, Nike, and Oakley. Whatever the motivation truly was, Lance was dedicated to preserving his reputation as a spotlessly clean rider. Knowing that the story about his EPO use had raised significant questions, Lance agreed to undergo special testing by doping expert Don Catlin. One of the first races of Lance's comeback was the Tour of California in February 2009. It also happened to be Floyd Landis's return from his suspension. But that race marked a diversion in the former teammate's fortunes. Lance was on one of the world's strongest teams, while Floyd could only latch on with a little-known domestic squad. But Floyd's problems weren't a concern to Lance. He was more focused on his return to the Tour de France. At the Tour, 37-year-old Lance far exceeded everyone's expectations. Although he didn't win, he finished third. The result was even more impressive because Lance wasn't even his team's designated leader. That honor had gone to a young Spaniard, Alberto Contador, who ended up standing on Lance's customary place atop the winner's podium. Buoyed by this encouraging performance, Lance got the opportunity to lead his own team for the 2010 Tour, the newly formed Radio Shack. The news was music to Floyd Landis's ears. With Lance at the helm, he'd surely get an offer to ride for Radio Shack. Except he didn't. Instead, Floyd joined another new team sponsored by the Bahati Foundation. However, the roster lacked the same pedigree as Lance's Radio Shack team. Floyd's new squad had no hope of getting an invite to the Tour de France. It wasn't even asked to participate in the lower-tier Tour of California. With his career in shambles, the enormity of what Floyd had done throughout his time as a pro cyclist began to weigh on him. He had lied, he had cheated, and he had stood by and watched as Lance steamrolled anyone who got in their way. But enough was enough. He couldn't take it any longer. So he did the only thing that could clear his conscience. On April 30th, 2010, two months before the Tour de France, Floyd Landis told the truth. In an email to the chief executive of USA Cycling, Floyd admitted to his long history of PED use in minute detail. 
In the process, he accused high-profile cyclists like USPS teammates George Hincapie, David Zabriskie, and Levi Leipheimer. And, of course, Lance Armstrong. The news spread through the cycling world like wildfire. It even reached Lance's nemesis, David Walsh, while he was on assignment in the Himalaya Mountains. Although Floyd's accusations were hardly the first time someone had claimed Lance had used PEDs, they were the most detailed, and they were the first to come from a former teammate. At the same time he sent his email to USA Cycling, Floyd launched a whistleblower lawsuit against Lance accusing him of misusing government funds. After all, the U.S. Postal Cycling Team had been funded by the federal government. It had sunk over 32 million taxpayer dollars into Lance's Tour de France victories, and that money had come with an anti-doping clause. If Lance was found to be in violation of it, then the government could sue him for upwards of $100 million in damages. With so much heat on him, Lance struggled in the 2010 Tour de France, finishing 23rd. It was his final race. Lance quietly ended his second comeback in February 2011. But the investigation continued all the same. Led by federal agent Jeff Nowitzki, the inquiry into PED use on the USPS cycling team lasted until February 2012. During that time, multiple witnesses had confirmed Floyd Landis's accusations to a grand jury. Scientific evidence was analyzed, financial documents were procured. Ultimately, the United States Attorney's Office announced that it was closing the case. But that didn't mean it was over. Instead, the responsibility had simply shifted over to the United States Anti-Doping Agency, or USADA. On October 10, 2012, USADA released its reasoned decision consisting of over a thousand pages of documentation. In addition to sworn affidavits from 26 people, the dossier included financial payments, emails, scientific data, and laboratory test results that further prove the use, possession, and distribution of performance-enhancing drugs by Lance Armstrong. This time, no amount of posturing or legal bluster could save Lance from the consequences. He was stripped of all seven of his Tour de France titles and all of his race results from his comeback from cancer in 1998 to his second retirement in 2010 were negated. In January 2013, Lance finally talked. In an exclusive interview with Oprah Winfrey, he confirmed what everyone already knew. Oprah asked him point blank, did you ever take banned substances to enhance your cycling performance? Without hesitation, Lance nodded and said yes. That single word vindicated all the people who had spoken out against Lance throughout the years. Stephen Swart, who claimed Lance and his Motorola teammates used EPO in 1995. Betsy Andreo, who described Lance's confession to using EPO in 1996. Emma O'Reilly, who discussed the positive cortisone test in 1999. And Floyd Landis, who had blown the lid off the rampant systemic PED use in the USPS team during Lance's Tour de France victories. And now the feds wanted their pound of flesh too. Following Lance's confession to Oprah, the American government joined Floyd Landis's whistleblower suit. 
Ultimately, the case stopped short of going to trial. In April 2018, the two sides settled out of court. Lance agreed to pay a $5 million penalty. For some, it was hardly enough. But for many of the people Lance had harmed over the years, they were glad to see this chapter in their lives come to a close. Now, when people mention the name Lance Armstrong, few, if any, think of a sporting icon and hero to millions of cancer patients around the world. They think of a lying, cheating bully whose incredible achievements were aided by performance-enhancing drugs. While some will point out that almost everyone was using PEDs during Lance's heyday, nobody went to the depths and depravity that Lance did to preserve his image. What made his actions so egregious wasn't necessarily that he cheated. It was that he destroyed people's lives to avoid getting caught. In hindsight, the fact that Lance was cheating seemed so obvious. You only have to look back at footage of his dominant Tour de France performances to see just how superhuman he was. But the fact remains that millions of people fell under his spell. In the end, it didn't take so long to expose Lance Armstrong's real nature because he was so great at hiding it. In fact, the truth was there for all to see. We just didn't want to see it. Thanks again for listening to Sports Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. In addition to the many sources we used, we found Seven Deadly Sins by David Walsh extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Sports Criminals and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite ParCast originals like Sports Criminals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Sports Criminals on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Sports Criminals in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Sports Criminals was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Sports Criminals was written by Alex Benedon, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, and stars Tim Johnson and Carter Roy. 